thank you so much for being here today. This is a very special time, and uh, I confess to you I'm unworthy even to partake, but let alone to lead you in this. As the festival of the unleavened bread, which was typically called the Passover meal, as it approached, there was a plot to kill Jesus that began to unfold, and Dr. Luke gives us some intimate details about who was involved in planning this horrendous crime against heaven. He begins in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1 with these words. He says, the festival of unleavened bread, which begins with the Passover celebration, was drawing near. I'm sure you've studied and you understand that the Passover was one of the three major Jewish holidays or feasts. It commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from the Egyptian slavery, but it also commemorated even more intimately and specifically the death angels passing over the Israelites' house houses because of the blood sprinkled on their doorposts and lentils. Thus, their lives were spared, and then they were delivered from their bondage of Egypt. So it was the Passover season. It was time for great rejoicing, but it was also a time of wicked resolve. And Dr. Luke mentions, makes mention of three devious entities who were behind the terrible plan to kill the very Son of God. He mentions them as the devout and the devil and the defector. First in verse 2, we note that the devout was the very first in line. It says the leading priests and the teachers of religious law were actively plotting Jesus' murder. But they wanted to kill him without starting a riot, a possibility they greatly feared. It has been said that they were, in their own estimation, the most devoutly religious of all the Jewish people. Jesus said to the crowd one day and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the scripture. So practice and obey whatever they say to you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush you with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to help ease your burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear extra-long tassels on their robes, and how they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the most prominent seats in the synagogue. They enjoy the attention that they get on the streets, and they enjoy being called rabbi. The members of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the ruling body of Israel uh, was made up of men from these two religious groups. Uh, the chief priests were very much the people who hated Jesus. Uh, this would have included the reigning high priest we know as Caiaphas and the former high priest Annas, who still had a great deal of power behind the scenes. It would also have included the captain of the temple guards and the, the other high-ranking priests. Most of these men were Sadducees, who were the liberal faction of the Jewish religious hierarchy. 
But why did they hate Jesus so much? Why did they want to kill him? Well, they hated Jesus for both political and economic reasons. I want you to listen to how Caiaphas expressed their political concerns. In John chapter 11, verse 47, John writes, The leading priests and the Pharisees called a high council meeting together to discuss the situation. What are we going to do? They ask each other. This man, and obviously that's a reference to Jesus Christ, this man certainly performs many miraculous signs. And if we leave him alone, the whole nation will follow him, and then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he said, how can you be so stupid? Why should the whole nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for the people. So it seems they feared Jesus' popularity, that it might provoke an unwanted response by the Romans that would cause them to lose their privileged and tenuous position under Rome's tolerance. If that happened, Caesar just might be forced to destroy the entire nation. Also within this group, there were some who had economic concerns. Caiaphas and his henchmen also oversaw the merchandising that took place on the temple grounds. And if you remember, at least on two occasions, at the beginning and at the end of his ministry, Jesus physically attacked and he disrupted their business dealings, costing them some money that never made it into their pockets. Luke records that Jesus entered the temple one day and he began to drive out the merchants from their stalls or from their selling booths. And he told them, the scripture declares, my temple is to be a place of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And after that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him, but they couldn't think, they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word that he said. So they hated him for political and economic reasons and we, we, we know them to be a very greedy, greedy people. Money is power, right? Then there were the scribes and there were the Pharisees who also hated Jesus, but for religious reasons. These men were the primary teachers of religious law. They hated Jesus because of his relentless assault on their faults and legalistic religious system as well as his constant exposure of their spiritual hypocrisy. But the bottom line, they hated Jesus because they were losing their crowd. More and more people who had been going to them were now going to hear Jesus teach. So their jealousy of Jesus stirred the hatred that they had for him. By this time, their frustration with Jesus not conforming to their religious agenda led them to be desperate in their attempt to come up with a way to make Jesus just go away. It's what you do with problems. For them, they just wanted him dead. Now, according to Scripture, we know that they could not arrest Jesus during the day because they were afraid of the people who had become such a, a, a crowd around Jesus. They were, they, they, they were considered... Uh, uh, people who were being attracted to the Lord. In Matthew 26, it says, At the same time, the leading priest and the other leaders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, 
the high priest to discuss how to capture Jesus and secretly, uh, to capture him secretly and then put him to death. But not during the Passover they agreed or there will be a riot. So this was just not the best of times. Nor could they arrest him at night because Jesus was in the habit of withdrawing to a secluded place to be able to rest and to pray. So they had a lot of things to think about. They needed, obviously, some help to do their dirty work. And, and what's that old saying, that the devil's in the details? Dr. Luke introduces the second devious entity that wanted Jesus to just be done away with, and that would be the devil. In verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas. It's a stark reminder for us that Satan loved to use people to do his evil bidding. Judas was already a shady fellow. Even as one of the followers of Jesus, he certainly wasn't following Jesus for the right reason. I'm going to show you in a moment that he was already a thief even before Satan took possession of his soul. He was indeed a thief. But at this point, he was not yet a murderer. But that would soon change. Whatever restraints Judas may have had due to his association with Jesus and the other disciples, whatever those restraints were, they no longer kept his wicked self in check. In fact, his sin nature rose up and took control. And at this point, Satan entered into Judas. He literally possessed him. He took possession of him. And he put it into Judas's heart to betray our Lord Jesus. John 13, 2 says it was time for supper. And the devil had already enticed Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. So like so many of those religious leaders, and I use that phrase religious. They were religious, but they were also children of the devil. That scripture bears that out. Judas became one of them. He certainly had no power to say no to the devil at this point. So we know that the devil hated Jesus, and he certainly wanted him to, to be dead. And he, he is a master of getting people to do what he wants them to do, his wicked will. And Judas became one of his evil puppets, probably the most Hmm. Wicked one of all. Beginning in verse 3, we see that this defector was up next. Dr. Luke had mentioned the devout and the devil, and now he speaks about the defector. It says, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the, the twelve disciples. Now, John MacArthur calls Judas history's most notorious traitor. Notorious traitor. Can you and I even begin to calculate the privilege? The special privilege that Judas had being numbered as one of the twelve. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you just fathom that? The Bible says he was counted as one of the Lord's followers. He, he lived and he walked with the Son of God for more than three years. And he had opportunity to hear Jesus preach and teach on a daily basis. He would have also personally witnessed many of the miracles that Jesus had performed. So, so Judas had a privilege that was shared by only 11 other people. Special. And yet Judas, after all the special privilege that he had, shockingly he sold Jesus out 
to the Lord's enemies for 30 pieces of silver, which was the common price of a slave. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about Judas. We do know that Scripture says the other disciples really had no reason to suspect that Judas was going to be the one to betray Jesus. But Jesus, from the very beginning, recognized that Judas had a wicked heart. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, but some of you don't believe me. See, he knows who they are. Some of you don't believe me. It says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. You remember, he's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. That's pretty specific, isn't it? He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would betray him. John referred to Judas this way, that he was a thief who was in charge of the disciples' funds. He carried the money purse. And it says he often took some for his own use. He had his hand in the funds. The Old Testament gives us some predictive thoughts about Judas being the one who would betray the Lord. Psalms 41 verse 9 says, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. Psalm 55. It says that, it is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foe who so arrogantly insults me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion, my close friend. What good fellowship we enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. So there's some prediction in the Old Testament about who this would be. But I want you to understand Betraying Jesus was the choice that Judas made. It was a choice. Just like every time we sin, it's a choice. This was a choice he made. The devil didn't make him do it. He just gave him the opportunity and the temptation. For me, the most troubling thought is that Judas was one of the twelve. And all four gospel writers make mention of that fact. With all the people who hated Jesus... It's hard to believe that Judas did what he did, and yet he did. And he alone was the one who betrayed Jesus. With Satan entering Judas, everything was set in place for the betrayal of Jesus. The clock was ticking, and it would soon be time for the crucifixion of Jesus. In Luke 22, verse 4, it says, And Judas went over to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted that he was ready to help them, and they promised him a reward. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so that they could arrest him quietly when the crowds weren't around. So the devout and the devil and the defector, they were all busy planning the most heinous crime of all history. As Luke moves on in chapter 22, he goes on to make mention of the preparational work that the disciples were a part of. 
On the very day that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, and I want you to think about that. This is the day when the sacrificial lambs were to be offered. It says Jesus sent Peter and John into the city to make all the necessary preparations for this special meal. Verse 7 says, Now the festival of the unleavened bread had arrived when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. And they asked him, Where do you want us to go? And he replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem. As soon as you make it through the gate, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already prepared. That is the place. Go ahead and prepare our supper there. So they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover supper there. The hour of Jesus' death was near at this point, and the Jewish leaders, Satan and Judas, they were all busy doing their part to make the cross happen. And I, I just need to add and make sure you understand that what they did was all in accordance with the master plan of God. They thought they were doing what they wanted to do, but they were actually doing what God wanted them to do. Well, the disciples did likewise. Not yet realizing what was about to happen, this would be their last Passover meal together. The, the reality and the brutality of Jesus' death was about to get real for them, for everyone. Everyone seemed to have a plan for that day. And, and, and they did, but ultimately it was God's plan that sent Jesus to the cross. In fact, they were all carrying out the prearranged plan of God. Do you, do you remember what Peter said about God's plan? In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, in that sermon that he preached, that very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing Wonderful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But, but you followed God's prearranged plan. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and you murdered him. However, God released him from the horrors of death by raising him back to life again. For death could not keep him in its grips. Praise the Lord. This morning, we've made our own plans to celebrate the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and, uh, and, and the, the promise to return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that by partaking of the Lord's Supper. So I've asked some men to serve you this morning, and they're going to come down and join me on the front row, and, and they're going to be seated because I want to say just a few more things before we get into the Lord's Supper. So Men, if you'll join me down front, there are eight of you that will serve our church today, and uh, they're going to make their way down, very much like the Lord's disciples gathered around him, and uh, let's see what else the Lord has to say to us. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verse 13. It said they went off to the city, and that would have been Peter and John, and they found everything that Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there in that place. 
And when the time came, Jesus and the twelve apostles sat down together at the table. On this very special night, the preset time of God's prearranged plan to be carried out had finally come. The time had come for the passion of the Christ. The cross was at hand. The suffering and the death of Jesus clearly was linked to the Passover because he was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Because of his shed blood, so many who have put their faith in him would be spared of the eternal death of sin. Jesus Christ was God's perfect Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us and for our sins so that they could be forgiven forever. As Jesus sat down with his disciples, he informed them that that was going to be their last Passover meal that they would eat together until later when he would reign as king in the coming of his kingdom. In Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus said, I have looked forward to this hour with deep longing, anxious to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat it again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Pay attention to this next statement. The whole message of the Passover is that God delivers through the judgment of sin by the death of an innocent substitute. We are delivered from the judgment that we deserve by the death of an innocent substitute. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs that were slain were merely a symbol of that coming reality. And my friends, Jesus is that reality. He was and he is. And his death was and is sufficient to save every lost soul that has ever lived on this planet. It was good enough for me and it's good enough for you, right? No animal sacrifice. No animal amount of animal sacrifices were ever in themselves sufficient to do what needed to be done, and no person has ever been delivered from divine judgment by the death of an animal. The writer of Hebrews wrote, The old system in the law of Moses was only a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of the good things Christ has done for us. The sacrifice under the old system, they were repeated again and again, year after year, but they never were able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship God. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, then the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers, would have been purified once for all times, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But he writes, that just didn't happen. The opposite, in fact, happened. Those yearly sacrifices reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why Christ came. And when he came into the world, he said this, You did not want animal sacrifices or grain offerings, but you have given me a body so that I may obey you. No, you were not pleased with animals burned on the altar or with other offerings of sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God. 
just as it is written about me in the scriptures. That night when Jesus gathered with those men, he very well knew that he was the long-awaited sacrifice sent by God to, to make the ultimate and complete atonement for sin. While on that same day, countless thousands of lambs would again be sacrificed on the Passover. What a meaningless waste. It accomplished nothing. And that is why God offered his sacrifice. Again, think about this. On that day, God poured out his wrath against sinners, just like you and me. But he did it on an innocent substitute, on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was God's perfect and complete sacrifice for sin, making this last Passover approved by God, the last one to be approved by God. So the symbolic sacrifice of animals pointing to the true sacrifice would from that day forward no longer be necessary once the Savior was offered up. Jesus began the evening by gathering his small group of faithful followers together in a small, very dimly lit room. It was certainly not a lavish banquet hall. It was nothing of what you're meeting in today. Its accommodations would have been modest at best, and the scene would be more like a, a group of, of friends gathering around a campfire. In this unlikely setting, Jesus introduced the practice to those men that's traveled down to us through all generations, and we call it the Lord's Supper. We have a table before us this morning, and at this table, we're invited into intimate fellowship with God himself and each of us who are fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember and to celebrate and to proclaim all that his death and his burial and his resurrection accomplished on our behalf. But today, this practice and your participation of the Lord's Supper should not be our great focus. Instead, our focus should be on what the sacrifice represents. You see, this is all about Jesus. It's all about his sacrifice. It's all about the good news of the gospel and what Jesus accomplished for us. It's been said that this practice is an anchor to ensure that we never drift too far from the glorious gospel. Today, we're sharing his story. That's what the gospel is. It's his story. It's not ours. It's his. It is a story of the unimaginable, the unfathomable, and the incomprehensible sacrifice that Jesus made. Again, this is all about Jesus. Not about me. It's not about y'all. It's about the Lord. And it's about the sacrifice he made for us on the cross. The gospel speaks about Jesus and his ordinary but absolutely unique birth. It speaks about his one-of-a-kind sinless life. It speaks about his submissive obedience to the Father, his steadfast focus, his selfless service, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, his amazing ascension, and, oh yes, his awesome promise to return. What a story. You can hear a lot of stories in this world, but you'll never hear a story like this. One of the great, it is the greatest story that's ever been taught. No man has ever done for you what Jesus did for you with his life and his death. Jesus shed his blood and he gave his life to save your lost soul. 
He did it for you. No one can do that for you. No one can do for you what Jesus did. Jesus came to give you life, life abundant, life everlasting, both now and forever. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. That life certainly gives us peace while we live our lives here on earth, but it gives us hope about what's coming in the future. Friends, Jesus came to love you with the cross. Amen? Amen. I want to ask our men to stand, and we're going to prepare to serve you the Lord's Supper, so you come in.